I know you can't see me, but I've deliberately come up to a place of uh, light and air uh, today, which is precariously perched on the roof of our building. <laughs> you wouldn't need to suffer vertigo. I shouldn't be up here, but it takes me out of our tiny, slightly shaded, uh, tiny, tiny matchbox size apartment on a day when I think, without being too mournful, I needed a bit of... Um, smell of the Spanish air, sight of the blue sky, and bloody hell, it's been a rainy month. Because today, I, I thought it was important, or at least right, um, to, to chat with you about Michael Robinson. Uh, Michael died um, overnight. Uh, today is, I think, Tuesday. We're into week seven of lockdown in Spain. And I know most of you will be summarized by saying you most of you probably don't know that much about Michael, but most of you, if you're on Twitter or if you follow um, the media in if you live in Spain or Britain or Ireland particularly, you'll have heard people talking about ex Liverpool forward Michael Robinson has died now. Michael was suffering for many, many months with a cancer that he um, combated with tremendous spirit and humour and, and chose to do so very openly, which I think is tremendously positive and healthy for those who themselves or via other family members might suffer in the future. He showed us all a path. But the reason to speak about him is that I think that a lot of people who are <clears throat> younger than me or didn't have the good luck that I had in, in getting to know him well might be scratching their heads a little bit and thinking, why has this guy commanded particularly affection and respect and a sense of huge loss amongst so many in Spain? And the reason goes far beyond this guy who, if you map out his career, um, he began at um, Manchester City and then moved to Brighton and made the cup final in 1983. That, that famous couple of games where Brighton had drawn 2-2 with Manchester United and you know, famously Gordon Smith caused, was it Barry Davis to say? And Smith must score. And he doesn't. I think Gary Bailey makes a point-blank save. It was Michael Robinson who set uh, Gordon Smith up with that one-on-one -on -one chance. And he was good enough at um, City and Brighton for Liverpool in an era of Rush and Dalgleish and Fairclough and uh, David Johnson for Liverpool to sign him. And he won the title. He won the League Cup in that um, Liverpool Derby uh, series in 19. Cup finals and Michael tended to go to penalties or replays. That's something that you have to say. I'm not saying it was his fault, but the 1 1 draw, no, 0 0 draw with Liverpool in, uh, with Everton in the, uh, well, I guess was maybe the Milk Cup of 1984, went to a replay and Suey's goal won it in against Everton. And that was his third trophy at Liverpool, having won the title and then having won famously. European Cup that night in Rome against Rome, the season when between Roma and the referee, Dundee United were cheated out of a, a place in the final. <laughs> even, even as a dandy, I have to admit that the Arabs were robbed there. But the reason I, I wouldn't have been um, sharing some thoughts with you uh, today, had that been 
the sum total of what Michael got up to, nor even had it been about his time in Pamplona, right up in the north of Spain, nud- nestled, nestled, nudging under the Basque country and Cantabria, where um, Navarra is, is has a capital in Pamplona where the bulls are run, and it's where Osasuna uh, live. And while at Osasuna, uh, just like Sammy Lee, Michael Robinson was a much-loved footballer for a couple of seasons when I think Osasuna finished fourth and fifth, which for them was a huge adventure. They could joust directly with Real Madrid and Barcelona. He he had um, points, either draws or wins, against both of those giants, one at um, the Cathedral San Mames. For Osasuna to go to Athletic and win in those days, that was gigantic, absolutely gigantic. The equivalent of... Aberdeen knocking over Celtic or Rangers under Fergie, um, the equivalent of Munich 1860 beating Bayern Munich. So, again, even though his move to Pamplona, and, you know, it's there are a lot of famous things that he said over his time as a broadcaster here in Spain, including admitting that when he first understood that he was to be sold to Osasuna, he, he started looking for Osasuna on a map and couldn't find it and was confused about whether he'd been spoofed about the whole transfer because he didn't know that Osasuna belonged to Pamplona. Just like the old joke about they'll be dancing in the streets of Wraith. The thing that makes Michael um, still more special is that from the late 80s, early 90s, and he made his very popular debut on television as a football analyst in 1991 on the the day after it's called El Dia Después. So the whole concept was launched there about quality post-match analysis. And while he wasn't the first um, to do it, he became, I, I think in this country, the most respected at it, the most famous at it. I often uh, tell the story of getting the first interview Viali gave when he was sacked by Chelsea. I went to his house in... Um, in Eaton Place in in Sloney, London. And after a long interview where he said some extraordinary things and uh, treated me to some very nice Italian coffee too, I said to him, what now? And he said, I'm going back to Italy to do... And you've heard this in the interviews, I'm sorry, but he, he struck me so. I'm going back to Italy to do what Andy Gray has done for British football. And at that stage, you know, having watched Andy Gray since he was a teenager and having watched him on Sky and... Not just taking him for granted, but but not noticed about how he was re-educating us in the way that we should analyse football and the way that television space that carries football should be used to change our vocabulary, to change the way that we understand things. Viali's respect for the impact Andy Gray had had when he began to use chalkboards or video technology on Sky, that really hit me. And that was in 1999. And if you think about the fact that... So Viali wanted to, he wanted to utterly change football an- analysis and the culture of how football was appreciated in Italy because he felt it was restrictive and it felt that all that TV people did, whether they be journalists or footballers or ex-coaches, were hammer defences if they lost a goal in a 6-1 victory or hammer the referee or whatever. And he said it was negative and he wanted an expansion of mentality, an expansion of vocabulary. Now, Michael Robinson started to do that in 1991 in Spain. And from the outset, one of the things that, that stood out, although I wasn't living here then, was that he 
I, he had mastered Spanish terrifically well. I know that in in the UK where I was brought up, there may have been foreign players who have come, embedded themselves in our culture, become popular and never really mastered English. But we have to admit that very many English coaches and footballers have gone abroad and not even come close to either wanting to or managing to um, make the language their friend. Now, Robinson used to joke, um, I've become adept at speaking very badly in a number of languages, but that was a lie. That was a typical self-effacing piece of humour from this guy who was born with kind of pop star good looks. I don't think there's any way around saying that in the late 70s, early 80s, middle 80s, he was blessed with sort of Hollywood physique, Hollywood looks, and not everybody gets given the character to go with that. Um, but he was no uh, clothes horse. He was um, witty and wise and able to learn Spanish, but packed full of ideas. He loved a bevy. Now, maybe that's why we became friendly. I don't know. I don't think so. But he loved a night out, both as a footballer and then as a broadcaster. Yet when he came to Spain, it wasn't the beautiful food or the lovely wine that enchanted him. It was the football culture. It was the lifestyle. It was the golf. And he made this country his own. Now, I've looked today at many people on Twitter. For example, my friend, a Swedish journalist, Alexandra Johnson, saying that she modelled herself on him, even though they're generations apart in age. But she thought, there's a perfect example of how you integrate into a new country, why you learn the language, what you use the language for, how you adapt. Um, older than Alexandra and more experienced, but just as impacted by Michael's death, Filippo Pippo Ricci from uh, Cazzetto della Sport, who I knew in London when he was the um, correspondent there for Cazzetta, but now has been for many years in Madrid. There's a long series of tweets from him in um, Spanish talking again about how Robinson looked to Filippo coming as an Italian to Spain. This Engl well, English-born Irishman, because he played football for the Republic, born in Leicester, an Italian viewed Michael Robinson as a symbol that Spain was an open international country that would let you aspire to be part of its football fabric even if you were a foreigner. Think about that for an impact. Michael's died too young. He was 61. We've lost a bon viveur, a man of worth, a man of character, a creative man, somebody I admired and liked and knew very well. Um, I don't feel emotional the way I felt when Neil Cooper died so young because he was a, a good friend, somebody who shaped my entire life. But Michael, um, I must point out, even though this is a parenthesis, ch changed the course of my life because most of you will remember that uh, I hammer on and on, again, apologies, but it's true, about how a combination of resourcefulness on my part and, and, and inquisitiveness on my part and the firm hand of an editor, Brian Cooney, who said, yes, go, I'll fund you. I ended up sitting in Jean-Marc Bosman's front living room interviewing him in French the day that the Bosman verdict was confirmed. Now, that was an extraordinary coup for me. Um, it led to a, an absolute 
vault forward in my career. And I was proud to have done it, proud to have represented him well and told a good story. I'm proud to be Johnny on the spot. You need luck. That meant I followed Bosman as a, as a, as a law. And I wrote a lot about how things might change, who it affected. And I can't remember the first book. I, I kind of feel that maybe John Collins was at or around the first ever Bosman move, certainly from Britain. But not long behind him came Steve McManaman. Now, Steve McManaman was clearly a phenomenal footballer for uh, Liverpool and England. And I was in London working for the Daily Mail as the chief football reporter and having to fight my way through a great deal of um, hostility and barriers in my way. I'd come down in a, in a fairly, um, uh, what would you call it? Yeah, unpopular way. And the, the reigning football correspondent had been unceremoniously dumped onto tennis. I'd been put in after, I don't know, two and a half years as a full-time journalist in Scotland at that. And I needed triumphs. I needed to show my mettle. And I remember a close friend of mine who worked in Madrid said to me, and this was at a time when Steve McManaman was very close to joining Barcelona, but Barcelona did a U-turn, took Rivaldo from Deportivo La Coruña instead. And the fact that Steve McManaman's contract was running down and Nobody knew whether he was going to renew because Barcelona and I weren't an option or whether he was going somewhere else. And I was given the story, handed the story, by a close friend of mine who was working alongside um, or within touching distance of Michael Robinson, in whom Michael Robinson had confided. And Michael Robinson was a, a kind of assessor, consultant in the move that uh, to assure Real Madrid that Steve McManaman was the right man to sign Steve McManaman, who'd go on and win a couple of Champions Leagues and, and the league title and, and be hugely successful and popular at Real Madrid. Michael Robinson was counselling Madrid that this was the right time, this was the right move that in both an economic and sporting And I was given the story. And it became what was known as a back page splash. It led the back page for at that stage, five, six million readers um, um, across the UK. It was a big story. And I remember months later being sent to Spain, being sent to Real Madrid's old training ground, not where, not Valdebebas, where they weren't now, meeting Steve McManaman afterwards, because you could, once you got your accreditation, you could kind of just wander in and wander up the old steps of the kind of little training stadium that they used and, and catch his eye and say, see you after, see you after. And I remember him <laughs> coming out after getting changed after training because it wasn't a prefixed appointment and going, how the fuck, how the fuck did you get that story? He said, I promised it to my mate, uh, Dave Maddock at the mirror. I promised that if he waited, he would get the story. And he said, nobody knows. How did you get that? And moments like that where you get a genuine exclusive that nobody had written about, nobody had sniffed, nobody got that day, to get it right and to have the player himself going, Phew, I'm baffled, mate. That's, them were the days. Michael, thank you.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So to get back to what I was saying, Michael's um, legacy, if you think about Filippo and um, Alexandra, are amongst hundreds and hundreds of people. Communicate, some have sent me messages just to share with me because they know I liked him. Um, but many, 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 many people across Spain will be sharing messages with each other. And many people who knew him much better than I did, who worked with him for years, who'll be bereft at the moment. Because Michael touched you, he, he alongside those sort of Hollywood good looks, he had this charming personality. Where in conversation with him, he you could if you were on air particularly, you could forget that this was an interview or a documentary, and it could become a conversation. Therefore, you said things not only that were different than you maybe planned to say, but also you said them in a different manner, and that was because of his research and his intelligence yeah for sure but it was also because he was he had this charming smile he when he smiled he meant it he smiled a lot but he smiled with his eyes and his mouth and if you stop and think about it not everybody does that and it helped make him special and therefore what he went on to do over the years was begin to co-commentate in a manner that, for example, my friend at the golf club where uh, Duncan McMath and Simon Hanley and I all play and where Pep Guardiola plays when he comes back to Spain and has time on his hands. Up at Valramanes, Josue, um, our friend there, said he's the guy who lit up my childhood as I listened to his voice talking about elevating football matches that I was watching. He worked for many years, many, many years, Michael, on Canal Plus with a guy called Carlos Martinez, who must be a little bit lost and a little bit sore today, I'd imagine. They were a, uh, a duo of real skill. And Michael always added something. Michael's comments were perfectly timed. They never told you or repeated just what you'd seen. They were interpretive. They were colourful. They added value. Maybe I can stop there because... To add value is what you should be there for if you're a co-commentator. And the hard fact is many, many ex-footballers and ex-coaches missed by a fucking country mile. Not Michael. And I think to, to finally wrap it up, that Michael became a really good documentary maker. First as a sort of front man, brand name, narrator, but increasingly in what was called Informer Robinson, Robinson Informs, he became producer. And he, although he always gave credit to a brilliant team of researchers around him and producers around him, because he did love to nick off for a game of golf and woe betide anybody who interrupted his game of golf or tried to. But he nonetheless was a bright, creative guy who began to produce a very wide range of documentaries, whether on different social subjects or different sporting subjects, he didn't 
um, limit himself to football. And I think that was valuable because he was a creative, intelligent man. If you want to see Informe Robinson, then they're on YouTube. I don't think many, I, I'm not sure if any of them are subtitled in English, but you'll be able to watch and get a very, very clear idea about how good he was and what that voice sounded like. Because although he never tried to lose his Spanish, his British accent, English accent, he... Um, He had a register, a tone, um, maybe a baritone, that was almost like some of the greats when I grew up listening to commentary didn't need to strain their voice much. It was in the command. It was in the, the pitch and the tone of the voice. And it was in that inner certainty that they knew their sport inside out and therefore... They didn't need to elevate the volume in order to command respect and to communicate. That was special, and Michael had it. Funny guy, there's no question about He once, well, on the night of the Rome European Cup final, these are his anecdotes, not things he told me, but... On the night of the European Cup final, the, the players were kind of sharing the trophy around as they celebrated in the dressing room and went on the bus. And it had arrived, the trophy with the big ears, after that penalty shootout in Rome, um, when Michael had come on for Kenny Dalglish. Think about that. To, to, to also to play for the club he'd supported since he was a kid in Leicester. Th- this man really was a guy for whom, until last night, the dreams came true relentlessly. And Michael has the cop coming off the bus going into the airport to fly back to what is now Liverpool, John Lennon. And as they career through duty-free, he sees a, 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 what do you call it, a pallet of fags that his, I think his wife smoked at, at a really good price. So he stops to buy them, puts the cups down and rushes off to make sure he's not last on the plane, <clears throat> wholly forgetting uh, the cup and leaving it behind in the Rome uh, duty-free until, by his telling, Sunas says to him as he's getting on the plane, uh, Michael, there's a fucking cup. <laughs> the anecdotes go on and on and on to the extent that I'll finish with saying that <clears throat> in 1982 when I crossed the border, um, I think at Irun, uh, from France into Spain by train, uh, with my best friend Graham Runcie having taken the 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 Rattler from the joint station in Aberdeen down to London, um, a train to the coast, a ferry across the the Channel with a casino in it. Oh, that was heaven! And then the train Paris Madrid, which is a twenty-four hour overnight train. And when you crossed the border in those days, the railway gauge was different, and you had to stop. And I don't think you actually changed trains. I think there was a machine to help re-route you on the... What would I remember from 1982? But at any rate, the gauge of the rails were different. And uh, it it is the case that there was a a pause and a delay in France till you could start off on your journey again. And yes, this was the same journey when not that long afterwards there'd be an altercation, some mad... racist Englishman would bash a bottle over a Spaniard's head and I would jump in on, on the side of the Spaniard and the cops would stop the train and arrest us both at gunpoint. But before that happened, I remember setting off, the train setting off with five or six mad Scots drunk in this carriage. It was mid-morning 
it, it was summertime. It was my first time abroad. It was my first time in Spain. It was the old train where you could open the windows and lean out. And I remember smelling the air. And I remember being utterly overwhelmed by a feeling of, this is where I belong, this is my country. That something deep in my gene pool was saying, whatever your ancestry is, you've come home. And the reason I link that to my goodbye anecdote about Michael is that he, he felt the same. He felt on having been here for a very short space of time and having fallen in love with Spain, not as an outsider, but feeling flipping heck. Hold on a second. This is tugging away at my DNA. I, I, I belong here. This is where I should have been all my life. He phones his mum. And the way he tells the story is, Michael says, my mum was the funniest person I knew. He said, I phoned her up and said, listen, mum, you didn't have a little thing with a Spaniard way back in the past, did you, that you never told me about? <laughs> and that was uh, Michael Robinson, a man who will be really, really, really dearly missed when football recommences here. And I remember writing for ESPN and I read you the column and uh, now I'm truly sad that when football begins again, in whatever form it begins, there will be some who don't come back. And fuck it, little did I know that poor Michael Robinson would be one of them. He will be missed. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.